Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm looking forward to Green Party MP Chloe Swarbrick sharing her career journey today. Chloe has been a law student, journalist, business owner and a community project leader. When interviewing politicians of all stripes on daily issues, she found that too often they'd become out of sync with everyday people's lives. She couldn't see herself, her friends or her whanau in politics. So in 2016, at the age of 22, Chloe ran to be the mayor of Auckland. Almost 30,000 Aucklanders gave her their vote after Chloe and her team campaigned for just four months on a shoestring budget. As a next career step, Chloe stood as a candidate for the Green Party and was elected as an MP into Parliament in 2017 after a particularly gruelling campaign. She's the youngest MP in Aotearoa for over 40 years. Chloe entered Parliament to show people that politicians can look a little different, sound a little different, do things a little different, and to drive home the message that politicians work for people. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Chloe and her career today. Kia ora, Chloe, and thank you very much for joining me. Kia ora, Anna. No worries. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, as a first question, I'd like you to think back a little bit. And when you were a child or maybe a teenager, what careers did you think about or what did you kind of want to be or, or do when you grew up? Oh, dearie me. Uh, the earliest kind of documentation that I have of this actually is a CV that we were asked to make when I was in year two or three of primary school. Dad found it uh, the other day when he was cleaning out the garage. And on that, I wrote as only you can as a precocious and annoying uh, little kid that I wanted to be either a pro skater, I had absolutely no skating skills, or a diplomat. I'm not sure how I found out what a diplomat was, but I just thought it sounded cool and it sounded like sorting out problems. So I think that Google probably helped me with that. But beyond that, I mean, I became really obsessed as I got slightly older with the idea of actually being a writer. And prior to falling down the rabbit hole of politics, I was really interested in small business or in academia and kind of tried both of those on for size in respective kind of areas. Mm, how interesting. I love the idea you could have been a pro skater <laughs> um, without even <laughs> being quite sure what that what that might have entailed. Well, I think that it was probably um, playing Tony Hawk's Underground on my PlayStation as a kid, perhaps. So who knows what I was thinking. I love it. And then tell me about your first job or, or jobs. You know, what lessons did you take from those? Uh, so my first job job uh, that I would have been paid for would have been delivering uh, the paper, the daily little, uh, not daily, weekly magazine around kind of three lamps, ponds in the area. I would have been probably 13 or so. And then my first kind of proper uh, job was working in retail uh, for two degrees, selling phones. <laughs> And I hopped around and did a bunch of freelancing and things after that. But when I was working, uh, I guess 
you know, the first kind of lesson as somebody, a young person who is engaged in delivering the paper, the first thing that I learned is that menial tasks are very boring um, and that if we can find ways to automate um, those tasks, then it frees up time for people to do more interesting, fun things that they may be more passionate about. Uh, with regard to kind of retail and customer service, uh, I guess I learned more than anything the art of patience, you know, particularly working in a, a space that you're dealing with people's phones, which has become increasingly a part of our day-to-day lives. Uh, people can get quite frustrated when things go wrong with them. Uh, and then you add into the mix uh, contracts that are quite complex that people might not have read or understood. Uh, and you, as the retail person, you know, standing there telling somebody that, you know, if they want to get out of their contract, then it may be a few hundred dollars, which isn't necessarily anything that you want to do. But you're representing, you know, this massive organization and this massive business. Uh, and, you know, on multiple times, had people, you know, scream and shout and yell at me for things that I was trying my best to help them with. So, you know, anybody who says that hospitality or that retail is unskilled work, I have news for them. (laughs) I learned a lot of very valuable skills uh, from working at the coalface there. How interesting. And I do like the fact in New Zealand that a lot of kids do grow up, whether it's, you know, through their studies, doing those kind of part-time jobs and you learn a lot of lessons. I mean, I worked at farmers and so retail, I worked in a cafe and absolutely, I remember a lot of the lessons that I learned there. But equally listening to you, that kind of patience to deal with people's frustrations, but also the ability to try and help people understand things that are complex actually plays through into into politics so so talk me through what was what motivated you then to get into politics Oh, dearie me. So uh, between the uh, time of working in retail, uh, I'll give you the most truncated version that I can, but basically between the ages of about 17 to 22, a whole lot happened in my life. Um, So the first is that I uh, am technically a high school dropout, but I got discretionary entrance to the University of Auckland. So I didn't do seventh form, year 13. I went directly to university, originally intending to study a BA uh, double majoring in philosophy and psychology. I I joke that that was to try and understand myself and my parents, but I was absolutely fascinated and enamored by philosophy and exploring ideas and critical thinking and those kinds of concepts. But I found that psychology in particular, uh, as somebody who has dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia, but with numbers, rather challenging. And, you know, undergrad psych is pretty much all stats. So as much as I enjoyed it, it just didn't quite gel with me. And I guess that's when I kind of took the first leap of faith uh, in just exploring ideas and kind of backing myself to do so and knowing that, you know, I was in a privileged position to be able to sell my skills, particularly as a freelancer uh, in the areas of copywriting and marketing that I had the capacity and the time to just kind of throw it up in the air and go, all right, well, I'll try something else. Um, I ended up doing a bunch of random papers at uni. I did some criminology, some media studies. I did some English. actually did one politics paper. It's funny, nowadays a lot of people ask me if I did politics at uni. I actually um, had nothing to do with (laughs) politics except for that one paper, uh, which was actually a crossover with philosophy. But then uh, I ended up doing postgrad as opposed to doing postgrad rather in philosophy, I decided to take on a law degree. 
Uh, and law was never with the intention of being a lawyer, but it was actually the kind of logical extension of attempting to look at the world, um, understand my place in it, and how you can restructure rules that feel unfair or unjust. While I was at uni, uh, I met my now ex-partner, um, Alex, but he's still a really good mate of mine. We were together for about six years. And we started working on a whole raft of small businesses and projects together, the first of which was a menswear label. Uh, it's, the reason it was a menswear label is simply because um, I'd managed to save a bit of money when I was working in retail. And Alex... And I met at the University of Auckland. I was fresh out of high school and knew nobody because I'd skipped a year and Alex was from Taranaki. Uh, so I took him clothes shopping. Uh, we couldn't find anything that he was really into. And I guess in that way that you can only really do when you're 17 years old, have a bit of savings and are interested in exploring things, uh, we decided to set up a menswear label. And um, so made men's clothing for about three, three and a half years. I also then that kind of manifest into doing this kind of online blog, which turned into a kind of culture uh, and arts publication called What's Good. We had contributors, about 40 different people from all across New Zealand and video and writing and otherwise. That then manifest into doing pop-up shops. And then I did a bunch of exhibitions for mates. Never had any idea what on earth I was doing, but always just kind of figuring out that, you know, you have the thing that you want to do in your head and you just reverse engineer that. Uh, so when I first put on an art show, you know, I kind of looked at what art shows look like on the internet and I found out, you know, you have a liquor sponsor, um, you have a space and you have some art. So I thought that we could bring all of those together. Uh, I also was working at 95BFM, independent radio station uh, in Auckland, for about four years. And that was really the catalytic point for me at the end of 2015, start of 2016. I was at BFM. I had spent the past few years, you know, interviewing politicians and feeling increasingly frustrated that the trope goes, you know, they never really answer the question. Uh, I've always tried to be the kind of politician who does answer the question, albeit never in a soundbite, which um, probably is the great irony of it, is that you can't answer any question meaningfully in, um, you know, a 10-second grab. But I was at BFM and I was interviewing the top four candidates as kind of deigned by the mainstream media uh, as the uh, candidates, one of whom would be our next mayor. And I was asking them about all of these issues that I thought were really pertinent, um, not the least, you know, things like lifestyle, things like cost of living, uh, things like art and culture and access to the environment and density and public transport, all the stuff that I thought was really important for a leader of the city to have a vision on. And they just kept pivoting the conversation back to rates, you know, for those who aren't necessarily familiar, rates obviously being kind of levies on properties which help to fund council activities. And I was just incredibly frustrated by that because, yes, whilst rates are an important um, kind of component in a conversation to have, particularly as citizens, surely the question should be actually about what's that being spent on and what can we collectively achieve as a populace? Uh, so I was frustrated with that and the like kind of tipping point was then this venue in Auckland called the King's Arms. I was working and doing a bunch of different music gigs at the time. 
uh, was closing down as a result of poor planning regulation, which basically meant that a really cheap apartment block was going up next to it and that had uh, no sound insulation because it was a cheap apartment block. And all of a sudden, of course, people were complaining about the noise, which meant that this kind of heritage arts and cultural space, not of heritage status, but I say heritage quite flippantly with regard to the history, expansive history it had of housing and giving a foot in the door to young local musicians to grow an audience and get experience and all these things are so important. I just started kind of connecting the dots and I was complaining to my producer, Lillian Hanley, who's a really good mate of mine, about you know, what the hell is going on? Why are all these people putting themselves forward to be mayor if they don't really actually seem to want to be mayor? Like, what do they want to be mayor of? What's the point of all of this? And Lillian, who put up with a lot of my complaints by that point in time, uh, kind of just said, hey, Chloe, you know, if you're going to complain about it, just why don't you do something about it? So I went home and I Googled, uh, as perhaps only a millennial and now Zoomers would do, uh, how to become Auckland's mayor. And I found out that I needed three things. The first was to be over the age of 18. Uh, the second was to have $200 for administrative fees. And the third was to have at least two people nominate me. And that's how I felt on the rabbit hole. <laughs> Gosh, how fascinating. And how fascinating that, you know, a lot of people find things in life that they're frustrated or disappointed with or um, dissatisfied with. But actually to kind of really put yourself in that place of, look, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do something about it or try to is, is a different step. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I reflect on that, I think. And this is where, uh, and I, I don't at all mean to romanticize this, but uh, I do think that my experience, particularly with mental ill health as a teenager and particularly with depression, and again, I really want to caveat this with it's not at all a romanticization because it's very messy and awful. But I think one of the biggest lessons out of that is kind of what is the point if you if you aren't living in a way that, that feels deeply meaningful, um, then to me you know, I, I, find it, I find it quite difficult to, to validate and legitimise the point of doing so and just mm. kind of ticking over another day. So uh, I, I feel very fortunate, I guess, to uh, have called uh, BS very early on on the kind of tropes that exist around the rhetoric that, you know, if you find the thing that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. As anybody who's ever run a small business or tried to make art their career, if you find the thing that you love, you know, it actually doesn't pay very well and it's very difficult. <laughs> but you work really hard to make it happen and, you know, you will fail along the way and it won't be all beautiful and roses, but, you know, it feels meaningful. And if you're able to make that work, then ultimately uh, I think that you have a more meaningful experience at the end of the day. Mm, it's really fascinating in terms of, and I think a lot of us struggle with that, is that how do you find something that you love to do, that you're good at, but that also can earn you a living? And how, how do you kind of find that intersection somewhere between the three? Chloe, I wanted to ask, with campaigning to be Auckland Mayor now as, a, as an MP, you're very much in the public eye. And from, you know, whether it's keeping track of media or hearing some of the stories, I know that when you get into the public eye, it's often you can face quite a lot of criticism, um, negativity, sometimes abuse, and I don't think social media necessarily helps that either. And I think particularly as a as a woman in that space, how, what's been your experiences of that? And, and if you have experienced that, how have you coped with it? 
Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a quite quite a, a high degree. You know, it, it thankfully has calmed down somewhat uh, over the past six months to past year. And I think that's primarily because I've kind of shown people, I hope, and don't get me wrong, I still definitely get an email every other day, uh, but or, or you know, anonymous comment on uh, Facebook or particularly Twitter. But I think I've really proven why I'm there. And it's it's not for a career per se, it's to try and change something. Uh, and it's to try and do the things that I believe in. I don't think that politics should be a career in the traditional sense. I think that uh, when you weigh politics as a career as opposed to potential for change, then you end up making some distorted and perverse decisions. But I uh, have found, I think, that I have immense experience now over the past four years, in particular since running for the Auckland Mayoralty in 2016, of validating and legitimising myself in certain spaces. What I mean by that is when you don't look or sound or come across as who people expect to be uh, a politician in this instance, then you have to do a lot more work that other people, simply by virtue of how they present, end up being able to shortcut. And what that means is consistently holding myself out or having to prove myself, essentially. Uh, And I think that we saw the opposite of that, actually, not too long ago when there was a change of the opposition um, leader. And, you know, he was asked, well, why are you the guy? Uh, And just for a moment, looked a bit like a deer in their headlights. And to me, that was a great uh, example of how when you have kind of sleepwalked into positions of power or up the ranks and you've never had to say, well, I'm the guy or I'm the girl or I'm whomever for this job because of X, Y, Z, when you haven't had to really reflect on why you should hold power or who you are and what kind of value or skills you have to add to the role. Uh, then I think that you end up taking a lot of the world around you for granted. So I I flip a lot of that um, kind of negativity on its head, I guess, by recognising that in bearing a lot of this, I'm hopefully um, softening the blow for those who come after me and normalising, particularly younger women, but women in general, uh, people who don't look, sound, dress the same as everybody else in these positions. But just to be perfectly honest with you as well, I mean, the flip side of it is that some days it does get absolutely unbearable. And on those days, I have to turn to the community that I'm really fortunate to have around me, my friends and my family, and they hold me up. And this is why I think, particularly in the space of mental ill health, which, you know, I I think I'm actually uh, now one of only two, three in history, but two current MPs who have ever talked openly about their own mental health issues. Uh, This is why I'm such a big kind of advocate for reimagining or rethinking the idea of resilience. 
because regularly um, we're told to commodify resilience. You know, you can work 70 million hours in a week and then just get a massage and then theoretically, you know, hey, presto, we've commodified resilience and you're supposed to be able to do it all. And again, that's another concept that I'd like to call BS on. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, resilience is a community trait. It's about having a group of people around you, whether they are in a company or in an organization or in your family or in your neighborhood or in your apartment block. I don't know. However, um, you kind of, whomever you interact with, when you have a community around you, you are able to take a step back when it is necessary to do so. And other people will take a step up. And this is one of the many lessons that I actually share with uh, particularly younger folks who now I feel like are taking on the entire world and are going to have me um, out of my job, uh, hopefully, in the next kind of few years. Uh, but, you know, the likes of those leading the school strikes for climate who kind of asked me about burnout and I'm like, holy moly, you're 14 years old, how are you burnt out already? And I reflect on, and I think it was probably 2014, 2015, when I had acute appendicitis and had to have my appendix out. It was really gnarly. I had uh, kind of two emergency surgeries, was in hospital for seven days, couldn't eat for five days, was obviously quite substantially drugged up during that time, couldn't uh, use my computer or look at any screens because it was just too dizzying. And I remember coming out of hospital and freaking out about how at that point in time I was running um, about three different small businesses and finishing my studies. And I remember thinking, what on earth is going on? I haven't been able to juggle all of these um, balls to spin all of these plates. Uh, everything's going to have collapsed because I haven't responded to these emails. And I got out and I realized that nobody noticed. <laughs> We have a propensity to center ourselves um, in our own stories. And whilst that can be useful to help propel us forward or to give us some semblance of kind of momentum or passion or drive, what is important to recognize is that everybody is the hero of their own story and that if you aren't able to survive and make something sustainable, then again, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, finding that way to take a step back from that barrage of commentary is is the way to do it, I think. Mm, and having that broader perspective about kind of your, your place in the world, but also having, I like that, that idea of actually having the community there around you to pick you up mm. if you need them. What would you say if you look back on your career to date, what have been some of the toughest moments or the biggest challenges that you faced? Probably the biggest one, just if I'm to think about in the last three years, kind of in Parliament, I have ended up uh, becoming associated uh, simply by virtue, I think, of the fact that no other politician wants to touch the issue with a barge pole with some quite controversial drug law reform issues. Uh, and I got involved in these not because I was necessarily amazingly passionate about it when I first came in. It was simply that, you know, no one else looked like they were particularly keen to do it or had other things on their plate. And I was up for the challenge. I mean, again, it was kind of that perspective of going, well, you know, I'm, I'm here to do a job and it's challenging and uh, it's also ultimately the right thing to do. And I ended up, again, falling down this kind of <laughs> rabbit hole of more kind of learning, building up an evidence base and challenging a lot of my own assumptions, actually. And 
what that meant is that I came kind of 180 on a lot of the assumptions and the ways that I've been socialized, uh, been raised on particularly, you know, buying into rhetoric around uh, such controversial issues as the likes of the war on drugs and, you know, figuring that there are better ways to treat people who are highly stigmatized and alienated from society through addiction or mental ill health or otherwise. And that has been one of the hardest things for me, um, changing um, my opinion and position on that, although, you know, that's not immediately uh, possible. But it's also led me to kind of being deeply proud of the work that I've done, whether it is changes to Section 7 of the Misuse of Drugs Act, which was a response to the synthetics crisis, and I fought very hard behind the scenes, but also, you know, in media to try and build that environment culturally conducive to that systemic and that structural change. Uh, And that change now means that the police are required to prove that if they want to prosecute people and throw them down a criminal pathway, that that is in fact in the public interest and that the person wouldn't benefit from a therapeutic approach. So enabling alternative pathways Uh, And then I've also done quite a lot of challenging work in bringing together, uh, for example, the Election Access Fund Bill, which is one of the many things that uh, people probably don't know about me, but it is a member's bill in my name that was originally drafted by Mojo Mathers, who was the first ever deaf member of parliament, a former Green MP, which essentially is a piece of law that set up a framework for a fund to be established to enable people with disabilities to run as candidates barrier-free in general and by-elections. And I worked across the parliamentary aisle um, and got full consensus. It wasn't at all a short process. In fact, we had to keep pushing um, timeframes out in order to get everybody on board, and I had to make a few slight tweaks around the edges. Uh, But that was another one of the kind of things that I was really, really proud of. Mm. And often I think I've heard a similar story from another politician that I I spoke with recently about actually sometimes that need to to work across, as you say, across the aisles, but actually that that was a massive learning experience in terms of just the machinery of politics and how do you get things through. Yeah, I think when you're you're in a smaller party, um, you also have a lot of exposure to always needing to do that. So um, it's kind of that thing, right, where when, you know, you operate particularly in the space that I'm in, um, which is, you know, that we uh, are consistently innovating and pushing the boat out on policies and socialising them, which then means that they become easier for those so-called bigger or more mainstream parties to end up adopting, you know, five, ten years down the track. And that is quite a difficult space to occupy constantly when you are always the one throwing out these new ideas which can seem absolutely radical and mind-boggling. Like we're talking about, you know, discussing climate change 30 or 40 years ago. (laughs) Um, And what that means is that I think you become far more acclimatised to the need to hear other people out and to empathise with their concerns because that's the only way that you ever bring other people around to your idea. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And if you, you know, you're still fairly early on in your career, but you've already achieved a fair bit. What drives you? What motivates you? I I think it comes back to kind of what I was alluding to before, which is that based on my experience um, inside the parliamentary machine, for lack of a better term, 
in a broad brushstroke, and obviously there's far more nuance and complexity than this, but in a broad brushstroke, I think that, you know, you can imagine a seesaw and on the one side of it, or scales or whatever, but a seesaw. On the one side of it, you've got a kind of career per se that is constantly extending the time in which you can occupy the position. And on the other side of things, you have got change that is transformative legislative reform. And effectively, the decision that has to be made almost every other day is today, do you want to choose the change or your career? Because you do end up putting one at risk when you opt to emphasize or prioritize the other. And I think that's why we end up, particularly in the political sphere, with a lot of people justifying incrementalism and not doing um, necessary change as it comes up, particularly to tackle some of the biggest challenges that we face, which only get larger the more that we dilly-dally on actually approaching them, such as climate change. Uh, And on that, I think I find my motivation and my drive from recognising that I can't take any day for granted. And I think that's another um, kind of insight into what it's like to be particularly in a smaller party. You know, you don't join a party like the Greens if you want to one day become prime minister, let alone a cabinet minister. You don't join um, a smaller party that has more activist kind of advocacy roots unless you are willing to kind of put your career on the line every other day. So I guess if, if we're to conceptualise kind of the notion of what a career is, I, I'm involved in change. Um, I'm not necessarily involved in big P party uh, parliamentary politics, and I don't see that as necessarily being uh, the way that I will spend out the next <laughs> several years of my life. I do very much feel like, you know, if the uh, really important catalyst for fundamental change that I believed in presented itself tomorrow and I had to make that decision, I would. And that's where I feel as well very fortunate to be, as you kind of spoke to before, a, a younger person who has the great privilege of being able to do other things. Um, I also, you know, don't I don't have uh, a home. I don't have a mortgage. Um, I, I rent. I don't have kids. So I have a whole lot of flexibility in that. And I, I am very cognizant of how lucky I am there. Mm. I find it really interesting that you sort of talk about this piece around that kind of p- politics with the P. And, and I think sometimes people do enter into it in the first place to make that change, but somehow along the way get caught up with, as you say, holding on to a job. Really interesting um, yeah. way to conceptualise it. Don, I just I was interested to hear now. You sort of said, okay, this is this is you know I'm keen to try and and see through some important changes and be a voice for a period of time, but probably not forever. So where where do you see your career heading in the future? Oh, great question. Um, when I figure that out, I have to let my dad know. <laughs> I I don't know. I I'm really fascinated with going back to university, and I'm actually currently um, still a part-time student. I'm doing my postgrad in public policy with a focus on economics, just because I'm fascinated by it as a field of study, and think that oftentimes people talk about it from a very ahistorical perspective, not taking into account that the so-called economics that we talk about in the mainstream is usually just one strand of economic theory. But um, I'm a massive nerd, if you didn't get it from 
that answer. Uh, so I see myself uh, potentially in academia. I see myself potentially returning to some form of journalism, although given, you know, obviously that I've engaged in partisan politics now, it would probably be some form of media that doesn't present itself as necessarily, you know, I, I obviously wear my values on my sleeve and you know what I stand for and where I sit on issues. Uh, alternatively, uh, perhaps writing. I, I've always wanted to write ever since I was a kid. You know, that was what I uh, said in answer to your first question. Alongside my CV that I wrote when I was seven, I also was really obsessed with writing. And that's because I think growing up, I got a lot of my understanding of the world and of other people and of human behavior and of what was possible and of different perspectives as well from books around me. So I, I would love to write, but that also feels, particularly in uh, the world and the place that it's in, like a very deeply romantic endeavour. <laughs> mm, and I think it, it's, it, you know, comes back to, as you said, a lot of artists who in this world do amazing work but find it a struggle to make ends meet, and, and that's probably similar for writing. Equally, I'm I'm still slightly flawed that you're also still studying at the same time as obviously doing your your current role. I mean, how do you find a sense of balance in your life? <laughs> oh, balance. Well, I have been a pretty poor student, if I'm very upfront about it. I've been doing about one paper uh, every few months, and there's actually it is a demo course that's being run by uh, Vic University in collaboration with the Parliament, the Parliamentary Business Association, with the intention to upskill MPs if they want it. So I was very keen to be a guinea pig because I'm always keen to uh, learn and to engage and particularly critiquing um, myself uh, because I, I don't think that anybody has a monopoly on the truth and I'm always keen to challenge um, and yeah, particularly my my long held beliefs, and that's something which my dad instilled in me growing up. But uh, any sense of balance, I'm very loath to attempt to give people advice on that. To be honest, I actually don't think that we have a social structure right now that is well established to enable people to have balance. And that is why I think so many small business owners, so many people operating in advocacy and activism are getting burnt out and it's because they're expected to do it all. So yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to give anybody any form of secret recipe because I end up burning myself out as well. Uh, and, you know, I receive a lot of great advice from a lot of people to the effect that, you know, you need to slow down and do less and all of those kinds of things. But I also feel such a palpable sense of urgency to solve some of those really critical existential issues facing us at the moment um, that I genuinely believe that all of us working together can solve. And the, the biggest one um, is obviously global warming and climate change, but you know, deeply interconnected with that is the policies that have enabled um, deep inequality to be perpetuated throughout the past few decades. Mm, and I like the way you talk about balance as there's no secret recipe, there's not. And it is completely individual and personal. And, you know, what works for somebody else, you know, chances are it won't work for you. And, and I think it can take take time to figure that out. One last question, if I may, Chloe. You know, you said Please. you're loath you're to give advice on balance, but I wonder if you've got any career advice for other girls or women out there. I think one of the kind of biggest driving factors for me was 
it's actually, it sounds really depressing um, when I first say it. So um, don't take this out of context. But uh, I, at uni, um, when I was doing my philosophy degree, uh, I studied different religions of the world. And I personally am agnostic, which means that I don't prescribe to any, but I do find value in engaging in different value systems and lessons from them. And within Buddhism, um, there is a number of different tenets, but one of them is that life is suffering. And that sounds really dark and very debilitating and very depressing when you first encounter that as a line of rhetoric. But I found that the deeper that you kind of dig into that as a way of looking at the world, you come to recognize that regardless of whatever you do, things are going to be hard. And to me, that demonstrates a massive sense of empowerment because regardless of whether you choose to work a nine-to-five desk job that you know perhaps you hate or pursue your passion and start something from the ground up, both of those things are going to be hard in quite different ways. And therefore, you're going to know that you're alive because you are going through periods of ups and downs and suffering, and that's what it means to be alive. So, yeah, that's probably the closest I could give to advice is that if it is hard and if you were suffering, then you know that you are still moving. <laughs> you know that you have things to contribute and you know that there is more to come. So, yeah, hopefully that makes sense. Mm, it does make sense. Didn't know we were going to get, even get into Buddhism today, but um, this, uh, really, <laughs> but, but absolutely. And I think... Uh, you know, nowadays we expect somehow some things to be easy or to always be happy and satisfied in what we're doing. But the reality is, is actually that, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are tough and, and it's often within it's not the those, human experience. It is. Yeah, and it's, it's often within not. those challenges that actually you learn the most and you, you grow the most along the way, even if it doesn't quite feel like it when you're in the middle of the moment. <laughs> And that's why it's so important as well to to find your people, you know. I think the other thing um, is to recognise that nobody ever does anything meaningful alone. And I think we have a propensity to look back at the arc of human history and read things like uh, biographies or autobiographies of people that we admire. And in doing so, we individualise massive systemic uh, transformational change of society, whether you're looking at uh, the civil rights movement movement or, you know, gay rights or women's suffrage. But all of those things uh, were reliant on thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of regular people participating and doing their bit. If, in fact, you like to or prefer to look at, I don't know, business leaders or whatever, those business leaders would be nobody and would, wouldn't be leaders if there weren't other people involved. <laughs> So it's about recognizing that you have to be part of something bigger than yourself and to contribute and to participate uh, if you want to change the world. And that will change your world and the world of those in your community. And in doing so, you also have the added advantage of stabilizing and creating a sustainable sense of resilience that I was kind of alluding to earlier and having other folks around you who will support you. And that perhaps is um, a worthwhile kind of point to investigate around the value and vulnerability. Um, so there you go. I've given you a few other random things mm. just out of hypothecating. <laughs> 
that's wonderful, Chloe. Thank you so much for your advice, your perspectives, your openness and sharing some of the challenges that you've gone through along the way. It's been fascinating for me to hear about your career and the journey that you've gone through today. So thank you very much for sharing it. No worries. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.